This week on WealthTrack, all the reasons to be bullish with noted Fed watcher and strategist Ed Yardeni. Any of these companies that uh, are providing us with cloud technology, video uh, conferencing technology, or providing the the hardware to make this all happen are uh, seeing their businesses explode to the upside. And and that's been very uh, apparent in the earnings reports that we've seen. So the market has actually been uh, rational, not irrational yet, but has been pretty rational about uh, which, which companies are benefiting from all this. Ed Yardeni's bullish outlook on this week's Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Remember all the discussions about the shape of the economic recovery? Would it be a V? Would it be a W or maybe even a hockey stick? Well, the jury might still be out about the economy, but as far as the market is concerned, there is no question. V's abound. The S&P 500 has reached new highs. The top five S&P 500 companies by market capitalization, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google's parent Alphabet, and Facebook, all but the last topping a trillion dollars in market value, are sharply higher. Home building stocks have had a fantastic rebound as of lumber and gold prices. None of this is a surprise to this week's guest who turned bullish near the market lows. He is Ed Yardeni, a PhD economist, longtime Fed watcher and investment strategist who is widely followed by institutional investors. Yardeni founded his own global investment strategy and asset allocation firm, Yardeni Research, in 2007, having held top investment positions at several major firms. He is also the author of a new book, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit, a primer for investors, which will be the focus of another wealth track. I began the interview by asking him how bullish he is. Well, uh, I was very bullish on March 25th, uh, and I, I'm still bullish, but it's uh, it's getting harder and harder to be bullish uh, as this market just keeps melting up. Um, and uh, honestly, I've been uh, kind of uh, holding the tiger by the tail. I've been chasing this market up. Uh, uh, on March 25th, uh, after what the Fed did on March 23rd in the morning, uh, I, I came out and I said, you know, I think that made the low when the Fed came in with all their uh, monetary easing. And uh, it was the low on the 23rd. Uh, I was bullish. I said, I think we're going to go to 2,900. And we were around 2,200, 2,300 at that point. So 2,900 looks pretty pretty aggressive. And we got there in a matter of a couple of months. So I raised that uh, uh, to uh, 3,500 for the end of the year. And we're just about there already. So uh, uh, for next year, I'm looking at 3,800, and everything seems to be happening ahead of schedule, which is consistent with my view that we're very likely in a, in a melt-up situation. And, and let's talk about uh, the melt-up situation, because you've been comparing uh, in your research reports uh, the 2020s to the 1920s. Are there you know, historical parallels? Well, of course, the, the, the big difference, let's start with the difference, is that uh, the, the melt-up in the 1920s occurred at the end of the decade. Um, uh, but the similarities uh, are, are there. Um, uh, we had the uh, Spanish flu in uh, 1918, and uh, that was a killer. It was horrible. It was a global pandemic. Uh, and everybody obviously was extremely pessimistic. We were in a recession in the early 1920s. 
but then, as you know, uh, the 1920s uh, subsequently turned out to be great because of technological innovation. Uh, and the result uh, was a huge bull market in the stocks uh, that ended in a melt-up in the late uh, uh, 20s with a crash in 1929. This time, uh, we may be starting the decade with, with a melt-up, but that may lead to a meltdown, but doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have another Great Depression. It just means that uh, uh, you know the, the economy is just getting ahead of the fundamentals. But the fundamentals could turn out to be equally as bullish in the 2020s as they were in the 1920s. Uh, the fundamentals of the 1920s was things like electricity, uh, the automobile, refrigerators, right. uh, plumbing, uh, basic stuff that we take for granted. Um, and uh, a lot of that uh, made our lives much easier. Uh, driving a car was better than walking or taking a, a carriage or a horse. Uh, the current uh, rev uh, technology revolution that we're in uh, could be equally as uh, uh, awesome uh, in terms of uh, our prosperity, in terms of uh, uh, just our standard of living up ahead here. And a lot of it really has to do not so much with brawn, which if you think about it, that's what the original Industrial Revolution was all about in the 1700s and the 1800s. This one's all about the brain. It's all right. about you know using artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, 3D technology uh, to, to make, make, make things smarter, faster. Um, and uh, that could really be revolutionary. So what do you do as a strategist when when you're you you're, you're kind of looking longer term and you're saying look we've got all of this fantastic yeah. technological innovation going on and yet values are kind of way ahead yeah. of themselves. So what do you do in the meantime in a time yeah. like this? I mean the the reality is that uh, in the early 1920s they probably didn't have a clue in terms of what technologies were coming and how radically that would improve uh, standards of living in the 1920s. I think we have lots of clues about um, 5G uh, uh, telecommunications and how that will enable um, all sorts of uh, Internet of Things, including uh, autonomous vehicles. But it's not like any, we, we haven't, uh, the market hasn't figured this thing out. And uh, maybe also because of the what I call the great virus crisis, uh, we've seen how important technology can be in allowing us to uh, get on with our lives. Uh, not everybody is as fortunate uh, as those of us who can work from home. Uh, but um, I, I think uh, we are making tremendous progress on the technological side, and the stocks have reflected that. But a lot of them has been the big cap uh, uh, names in technology and communication services, consumer discretionary. Everybody thinks of Amazon as a technology stock. It's actually in consumer discretionary. Right. Um and the problem with those stocks is they've been picked over. Everybody owns them. Uh, they're expensive. But you know what? Uh, as big as they are, they're, they're still showing double-digit uh, revenues growth and earnings growth. You know, we talk about them as being kind of the, the fangs, but in, in fact, that you've got several terms for them. And I think it, the uh, Magnificent Five being the, the five largest cap stocks, capitalization right. stocks in the S&P 500. So those, of course, are Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, um, Alphabet, the parent of Google and Facebook. Right. And they're like, you know, over 26 percent of the S&P 500 right. now versus the Magnificent Five in 2000. Microsoft, Cisco, GE. Intel and Exxon, um, they were at the top of the tech bubble yes. in March of 2000. They were only 18.5% of the S&P 500. Right. That's a big difference. Yeah, we're in the twilight zone. We've never been here before. We've, you know, we, we, we thought that things were uh, uh, 
pricey back in uh, 1999, 2000. Actually, we should have thought with the benefit of hindsight because it was a bubble and a lot of people uh, said that's different this time, it's a new era. And there's some of that going on now. The, the, the big difference is a lot of the companies that are leading the way here in the market actually do have revenues, actually do have earnings and have some really great prospects. And because of the great virus crisis, uh, a lot of their uh, uh, optimistic trends that they uh, were, were benefiting from have accelerated. A- any of these companies that uh, are providing us with cloud technology, video uh, conferencing technology, or providing the the hardware to make this all happen are uh, seeing their bu- businesses explode to the upside. And, and that's been very uh, apparent in the earnings reports that we've seen. So the market has actually been uh, rational, not irrational yet, but has been pretty rational about uh, which which companies are benefiting from all this. What about the you know the other four hundred and ninety five companies in the S and P right. five hundred? Right. Look, I think there's probably a, a lot of value there uh, if if you believe that uh, the twenty twenties have a chance of being uh, like the nineteen twenties. I mean, uh, the, these five companies that have sort of dominated uh, the, the headlines and have led the market up. Uh, a lot of the, the technological innovations are innovations that uh, other companies are using. Uh, You know, uh, look at retailers. We have lots of retailers that obviously have been shut down or uh, gone bankrupt. uh, But there were other retailers that uh, got the message from Amazon that if you don't provide online ordering, uh, you're going to be buried by Amazon. And so so, uh, not all the retailers were buried by the great virus crisis. Some of them, uh, like Walmart, for example, uh, have generated tremendous uh, earnings growth because they took the competitive challenge for Amazon. Amazon in some ways saved the retailers who who realized that they had to provide a, at least an online alternative uh, to coming to shop in the store. And it's worked very well. In the, the first book you wrote, which was Predicting the Markets, and I interviewed you about that in 2018, and uh, you said that you, you, know, you pride yourself on connecting the dots, connect the primary dots for us to, that underlie uh, this bullish case. Well, um, the, the biggest dot of them all is the Fed. The Fed. Um, absolutely. The Fed's always been key to, to uh, my thinking about uh, the economy, the financial markets, particularly the stock market. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, I, I haven't uh, always uh, been uh, particularly good at uh, uh, calling corrections. Uh, and uh, and uh, even in bear markets, a few of them, I wish I'd been more bearish. Uh, but the good news for me is uh, bull markets tend to last a lot longer than, than bear markets. And I've picked some pretty uh, accurate uh, bottoms just by watching the Fed. Uh, When the Fed says, oh, my God, we're in a recession and we got to ease and provide a lot of liquidity, that's that's the bell. Your latest book is called Fed Watching for Fun and Profit. And and I are going to devote an entire show to that because of the the critical role that the Fed does play uh, in the market. But aside from the Fed, uh, what else? What are there? What are the other big dots that you're connecting again that underlying? underlie the bullish case. Once you sort of focus on the Fed, you can start looking around and saying, okay, how are these policies affecting the economy? How are individuals, uh, how are consumers, how are businesses responding to the virus and to the policy response to the virus? And uh, one of the clear winners here is anything housing related. 
Right. And uh, so well, as you said, housing is on fire. You know, uh, we we've been waiting for a long time for the millennials to uh, uh, to to, to uh, start acting uh, uh, like uh, their baby boomers. Uh, uh, the, the baby boomers and buy houses and have families and kids, um, and uh, the, the the jury's still out on whether they're going to have uh, more than one kid. But uh, there seems to be a, a lot of anecdotal evidence of late that uh, a lot of millennials who had been renters in in urban areas are moving at, out to suburban and rural areas and are uh, scrambling to buy houses. So uh, housing starts, new home sales are very strong, existing home sales are very strong. And that in turn has a lot of knock-on effects on uh, retail sales that are related to uh, to housing, like uh, home improvement, uh, lumber, uh, nice. gardening. And that could uh, actually also be a big positive for autos. I mean, people who move to the burbs that if they were lived in an urban area, they don't probably don't have a car. So there's a lot of positives uh, for the economy. But on the other hand, the service economy is hurting badly. Uh, so anybody uh, in restaurants, hotels, um, those those kind of services industries where people have to physically be there have been hurting. Now, a lot of restaurants have outdoor um, uh, seating now, but what's going to happen in the winter? Um, right. So we're, we're not out of the woods on this thing uh, at all. Put on your PhD economist hat. Remember the big debate, you know, is this going to be a V-shaped recovery, a W, is it, is it going to be a hockey stick, yeah. I mean, whatever. What's it turning out to be? I'm staying away from the alphabet right now using the, the Nike swoosh uh, logo, you know, where you go down and then right. you V up and then you start to swoosh a little bit. Uh, I don't really see the economy going back to where it was uh, at the end of last year, which was the all-time record high for G real GDP, uh, maybe until the, the middle of 2022. I think the service economy is, is going to be slow to recover. And in many areas, it, it may not recover. Um, which means that companies, uh, for example, in retailing that's, that uh, are the haves and, and figured out how to survive will get more market share. Uh, but that's still going to uh, be hurting us in the labor markets. But boy, there's still a lot of misery in the labor markets. And a lot of that is in service related jobs. And, and that misery could, could, could uh, stay a while. One of the things that you said, if you extrapolate 6% annual appreciation in the Dow, which is what it's been uh, historically, that right. puts it at 45,000 by 2030. It, right. is, is, how possible is that? Well, keep in mind, it's only a measly 6% per year, uh, right. which some people don't view as uh, what you should be getting for the market. You know, some people got used to getting double-digit returns from the stock market. Uh, all it just shows is what Warren Buffett's been saying for a long time, that you know, the, the, the magic of compounding really uh, gets you to levels that uh, seem magical and uh, uh, impossible until you realize you're just compounding uh, 6%, which has been the trend since the, uh, uh, the the early 20s. I think the key here is is inflation. There are people, uh, including myself, who are kind of wondering, is this going to wind up like Weimar or Zimbabwe hyperinflation? Right. Or is it going to be more like because of the incredibly expansive, unprecedented, uh, you know, Fed action, the all of the cash sl liquidity sloshing right. around the global system? I mean, it's it's we've never had it to this extent. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if you just kind of based everything you know on what you learned in school, and right. in school they taught us that uh, you know inflation uh, is a monetary phenomenon, and if you just 
you know, pour buckets of uh, liquidity into the financial system uh, and the economy, you're going to get uh, uh, inflation. Well, uh, we're not getting much in the way of price inflation. We are getting a lot of asset inflation, mm -hmm. and that could lead to bubbles, which then could lead to meltdowns. But um, I don't think the Fed is going to be causing a recession anytime soon because I don't think there's going to be an inflation problem. I think there's uh, there's some very powerful forces that are keeping inflation down. And I think the most powerful one is actually demography. Um, and Japan, therefore, becomes kind of a more logical uh, alternative to where right. this all so leads. So demography being the aging population right. uh, and also declining birth rates uh, yes. as countries become more affluent, right. their birth rates decline. Yeah, that's, that's correct. There's other factors. Technology is disruptive and it's mm -hmm. fundamentally deflationary. Uh, you know, And uh, so I think that's another reason not to worry about inflation making a comeback. Right. Now, globalization, of course, has been uh, yes. deflationary, Correct. but that's under attack, Ed. Yes. So, yeah. you know, could could that possibly uh, bring inflation back if uh, if you can't buy cheap goods from overseas and you're, uh, you know, you're basically re, you know, mm -hmm. repatriating industries uh, back into countries where the uh, labor prices are higher? What do you Absolutely. think? Oh, I, I think that's a very good point. I call them the four Ds. Uh, and the first one is globalization. The problem is it starts with the G. So my wife is French and she said, how about detente? So hey, that works for me. So you're right. Uh, one of the forces, one of the four forces, the other uh, are technological disruption. That's a D. And then demography. That's a D. And then debt. We're used to thinking of debt as being inflationary. But uh, once everybody's kind of up to here in debt uh, and um, and the Fed continues to provide cheap credit, a lot of it goes into creating too much supply, uh, too many zombie companies that's, that stay in business. But to your point, which is a very important point, globalization, global competition, the ability to produce things where labor is cheap has been a source of low inflation, deflation. However, uh, I think technology is gonna be very important here. I think there, there's gonna be a move, uh, there's already a move to bring supply chains uh, back uh, closer to home everywhere. And uh, I think uh, things like uh, th 3D um, uh, manufacturing is certainly one, uh, one, one uh, very important technology that can uh, make things uh, happen at home. Right. And, and that certainly is, would be you know, disinflationary. Absolutely would be the 3D disinflationary. manufacturing. Uh, that's, is, that's a revolution. That's the kind of that's revolution, revolution you're talking about. Uh, right. I think that, that kind of uh, innovation is not uh, pie in the sky. I think it's something we can do today. Going back to the to the market, what would cause you to turn bearish? Well, uh, at this point, I'm actually worrying about the melt up. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the market just won't listen to me. I've, I've been I've been saying, you know, this market really needs a rest. It really needs to consolidate its gains. You know, we've only recently seen that analysts are starting to actually get a little bit more optimistic about earnings. It, it'll be healthier. Uh, if the economy just said, okay, let's let's see if uh, if we get really are getting out of this uh, virus crisis, let's see if uh, it's a V-shaped recovery or whether there might be a, a double dip. Let's let's give it some time here to to play out. But the markets get kind of running way ahead of all this, and uh, a lot of it has to do with the simple fact that uh, uh, bonds just aren't really that interesting with interest rates near zero, and uh, and so a lot of people are continuing to. Uh, uh, rush into stocks. So that, I am concerned about a melt-up. Uh, Except, that could... Ed, you know, we say that, but yeah. but in fact, the, the fund flows 
have still been largely into bonds. I think some of that is munis. Um, uh, okay. I, yeah, I think that's 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 a, an important part of it. There has been, uh, I know, in talking to my institutional accounts, that a lot mm-hmm. of them have been rebalancing out of bonds into into stocks. And as you know, uh, fund fund flows, you got to account for a lot of different players. And right. the fund flows we're, you're talking about are clearly uh, mutual funds or, or ETFs. And a lot of people buy bonds uh, d- directly. Um, uh, and so they might be selling them directly to buy buy equities. Yeah, the big buyer of, of bonds, of course, has been the, the the Fed. And there are a lot of institutional accounts that I speak to that say, okay, if the Fed wants them, I'll sell my bonds and sure. I'll re- rebalance into stocks. Uh, a lot of them regret that they didn't do it faster. It was very hard to jump jump right back in into this market after the kind of sell-off we had in February and March. As far as individual investors are concerned, many of whom, of course, own index funds, many of whom therefore own a big portion of the uh, of the FANG stocks or their equivalents, uh, you know, what do you think they should do? Well, at this point, I think you just uh, stay in the market. Um, uh-huh. You know, I mean, I mean, if you've been totally out and you're sitting there in cash, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it's it's a, it's a little late to be jumping in here. And the problem with getting in here, if you ha- if you haven't been in the market, is, you know, the first uh, sell off, uh, you'll be jumping out because you just won't be able to t- take the pain. So I, I think for the most part, uh, investors should just kind of stay put. Uh, you know, that sell off that occurred in February and March, in some ways, was a fortuitous one. It, it occurred so rapidly that people really didn't have a chance. Uh, to, uh, to to panic out of it. Um, Respond if uh, if you've got too much in the uh, in the magnificent five and the in the big tech uh, companies, you may want to start to rebalance as as we as we like to say uh, into other areas in the market that have lagged behind. Uh, I mean, healthcare still looks pretty good. I think healthcare has actually been held back by by concerns about you know how politics will play out on uh, on November third. Uh, but uh, I think no matter how politics plays out on November 3rd, I think the prospect is pretty good for the U.S. economy. And, and again, I think the Roaring Twenties uh, was really fueled by technological innovation. And I think we've got enough technological innovation that uh, will improve standards of living, improve prosperity uh, and, and earnings, which is really what drives. That's why, why the Dow Jones has been up 6% per year, because that's been the trend of earnings. We ask each guest at the end of every wealth track if there's one investment uh, we should have in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would it be? And just as a reminder, in 2018, um, you said uh, that it was invest in the global economy, and you said basically about one half in U.S. stocks, 30 percent in uh, in Europe and Japan, and the rest, which would be about 20 percent in emerging markets. Uh, what what do you think about that approach now? Number one, I, I don't really have any regrets. I think that's a, that, that's uh-huh. that's a good approach. I mean, uh, the the, uh, the the problem for global investors has been that uh, you, you know if you didn't have a a full weighting in the uh, the, the big tech uh, U.S. stocks. Uh, You've uh, you've underperformed, and uh, that's that's been the problem for everybody. Uh, whether you're small cap, large cap, or growth value, uh, or stay home versus go global. Stay home used to mean uh, you know invest just in the U.S. rather than right. since the virus. Uh, but uh, I, I think you just really have to make a decision on what do you want to do with those large uh, cap names. If you own them, if you've if you if you've got enough of them, uh, you you may actually want to pair back and 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 go. Uh, uh, more global 
Um, and uh, I, I would bet that the global economy uh, will come out of this prospering. And I don't think we're going to find that uh, world trade is shut off. Uh, there'll be some rearranging of supply chains, but uh, I think it'll be very difficult for everybody to just kind of go it alone. And uh, if you go it alone, you're going to miss some opportunities to uh, sell to consumers uh, abroad. So I, I, I would stick with that approach. All right. So, so the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio today would be, is is there, can you be more specific? Would be there, would there be a particular sleeve of that global approach that you would emphasize? Well, I, I would still stick with the U.S., um, you know, um, but, but maybe uh, cut back on uh, – the, uh, the the big tech names go to for to some of the smaller tech names. Maybe I think the you know the the large cap uh, sector has really outperformed dramatically. Uh, really, it since, has. It was really since 2018, and right. uh, I, I think there's opportunities here uh, in, in in small cap, mid cap technology, healthcare, in, industrials. Uh, you don't really have to take huge positions overseas to be exposed to the global economy. Even small companies here uh, do 30 or 40 percent of their business on a global basis, and that's probably going to continue. Edgar Danny, always a pleasure to talk to you, and I look forward to a future program with you um, about your new book, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit. So look forward to that, and thank, thank you, you for your time today, Ed. Thank you, Consuelo. At the end of every wealth check, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is don't fight the Fed or at least before you do, be darn sure you know what you are doing. Marty Zweig, author of the investment classic Winning on Wall Street and a very successful analyst and investor in his own right, coined the phrase because he observed that, quote, the monetary climate, primarily the trend in interest rates and Federal Reserve policy, is the dominant factor in determining the stock market's major direction. Edgar Denny and many other veteran strategists agree, as a general principle, don't fight the Fed is a good place to start. Next week, retirement pro Mary Beth Franklin addresses the pandemic's impact on retirement planning and how to adapt. In this week's extra feature, Edgar Denny explains why COVID-19 has not changed his work life at all. Whatever your situation, we appreciate it when you connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending your precious time with us. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable and productive one.